Hello, and welcome back. I am Susie. This is my podcast. In this episode, I will continue to enthrall you with my thoughts on justice. Don't lie. You came back. You couldn't stay away. You need a little fix, and I'm here to give it to you. So just relax and let me tell you a story. It's a story about a boy who grew up in D.C. and who died in D.C., a boy who came to shape America's entire idea of federal law enforcement and what it means to be a, quote, real American. That boy is J. Edgar Hoover. The story doesn't start and end with Hoover. Golly, no. Edgar Hoover was as complex and contradictory as America itself, and that's why I want to talk about him. So let's get into it. Hoover was born in Washington, D.C. in 1895. D.C. was a southern city. It's widely known that the origins of its substantial black population began as slaves who built the city itself. After the Civil War, the generations of black people that lived in the city were largely in the service industry. And by that, of course, I mean that they were servants. Paid servants, but servants nevertheless in all of the meanings of that word. The Southern world generally considered Black people to be a kind of chattel, and Hoover was no different. That was the world in which he emerged, in which he formed his ideas of American citizenship. His father was a civil servant working for the U.S. government and a skilled bureaucrat. The apple really didn't fall far from the tree, and Hoover soon realized that he had a gift for organization. I really think Hoover should have been like a librarian at the Library of Congress or the National Archives. He would have slain that and done far less damage. Anywho, with this gift of organization and cataloging, Hoover was recognized as leadership material, and he was put in charge of the Radical Division in 1921, when he was 24 years old, where he could root out communists and communist sympathizers. Do you remember how stupid you were when you were 24 years old? I do. I was really stupid. I wouldn't have been, I mean, heading up a radical division. Anyway, this was in the 1920s when Stalin was really gaining power and aggressively moving Russia into rapid industrialization in the midst of a famine, no less, therefore making things exponentially worse and millions of people starved and died. However, Stalin was a really great dictator in the sense that he really knew how to control the messaging and the information that got out of Russia. And so, to the world's eyes, it looked as though he was the Superman that his name implied. Stalin means man of steel, you see. He was shepherding Russia to modernity, to prosperity in a utopia delivered by communism. Americans on the left were pretty interested. It looked pretty good to them. Power to the people. But the American power base was horror-struck, partly because many of them had access to intel, and they knew the truth, that Stalin was starving and murdering his people and lying about it, that he was preparing for war and an expansion of communism all over the globe. It terrified them. So the reaction was a lot of anti-communist activity in the form of spying on Americans, infiltrating groups with informants, and planting material in the press to sow division internally within groups. Just a lot of dirty tricks. All the brainy brainchild of J. Edgar Hoover. He was young, 
he was idealistic, and he was a radical of his own sort. Hoover hated communists more than anything for his entire life, and it was his mission to stop them gaining any form of influence in the U.S. Problematically, this was true in the latter part of his life when he was seriously paranoid and also wielded enormous power. A cocktail for abuse if there ever was one. Hoover headed up the Radical Division until the Bureau of Investigation became the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1924, and President Herbert Hoover appointed him as the director. Hoover's for the win! Interestingly, one of his first acts was to fire all the women agents and prohibit women from serving as agents in the Bureau. This was because Hoover had a very specific idea of what an FBI agent should look like and be like. I mean, very, very specific. Like, fetishistically specific. (laughs) To wit, a G-man had to be white, of a certain height, a certain weight. His hair should be cut in a certain way. He should wear a certain type of suit cut in a specific style. It was basically Hoover's profile preferences on Tinder. He will swipe right on that hot G-man action. Or whichever way one swipes. Anyway, the point is, Hoover's idea of the perfect FBI agent became the requirements to actually be an FBI agent. And he was skilled at propaganda, so he was successful at shaping middle-class America's ideas to reflect his own. He sanctioned comic books about the G-men with all sorts of exciting spy stories, radio plays. And when television emerged, FBI stories was one of the most popular and long-running series of all time. The living image of Hoover's imagination over decades. It seeped into the American subconscious, along with a whole bunch of cockamamie ideas about what it means to be a, quote, real American. By the by, if Dr. Beverly Gage wrote an astoundingly good book about Hoover that is called G-Man, and you should totally read it. Dr. Beverly Gage, G-A-G-E. Hoover's shaping of American justice did not stop at cultural representations, of course. In fact, they were centered in his desire to influence American politics according to his own ideals, which he considered to be both primary and of the utmost righteousness, namely white supremacy. White supremacy was rooted in every single thing Hoover did throughout his entire life. His hatred of communism was rooted in his deep anti-Semitism, and was easily translated into his hatred of anti-war advocates, civil rights advocates, women's rights advocates, really anyone who demanded an equal share of constitutional rights based on their equal citizenship. He labeled these people as subversives because, in his view, they did not, in point of fact, carry the full weight of citizenship based on their inferior status as non-whites or women. That's not a hyperbole or an exaggeration of any kind. That's what he believed. He was outraged at the actions of people who were trying to communicate the injustice of their circumstances to their government and to demand their rights be observed. And when ignored or dismissed or punished for it, and they come back stronger and demanded it again, how dare they? But Hoover wasn't the sort to go openly to war. His tactics were to destroy his enemies through methods of subterfuge and surveillance and abuse of power. He did it pretty regularly, and he didn't save it for the subversives. (laughs) He quietly battled every president who served during his term at one point or another. 
please note, I, I do not say that he served during their terms because he was de facto leader of the FBI in perpetuity. Hoover was the director of the FBI from its birth in 1924 to his death in 1972. During his life, he headed the FBI under Presidents Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. And every single one of them feared him because he had dirt on all of them. And he made it known that if they ever tried to steer things in a direction he didn't like, he would make things very difficult for them. By and large, though, with the exception of Jack Kennedy, who wasn't a problem for too very long, he vibed quite nicely with the presidents and served their interests well, so long as they aligned with his own. The common fear and hatred of communism allowed him all the freedom he needed to lock down opposition momentum, particularly anti-war factions. I feel like Hoover really blossomed in the era of civil rights movements and anti-war movements against the war in Vietnam. And when they began to converge, he put that shit into overdrive. The tactics that he had sharpened with Joe McCarthy in the 50s were really brought to bear when it came to radical movements in the 60s. It's during this period, I think, when the veneer of his reputed virtue and nobility begins to flake away and people begin to see just how fanatical and corrupt Hoover was. Martin Luther King Jr. won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. This utterly incensed Hoover. He was horrified and felt that the entire world had been bamboozled by someone he deemed a liar and a fraud. When Dr. King was set to go to Geneva, Switzerland to accept the prize, his wife received a package that included a recording of Dr. King, allegedly in extramarital sexual situations, and a letter written by a white man named Bill Simmons, posing as a black person who berated Dr. King for his lies and betrayals and suggested he should kill himself. That was Hoover's idea. Gross. He also really, really, really hated the Black Panther Party. A lot of white people were incredibly afraid of the Black Panthers, largely because they were packing. That was totally okay for white people, but black people with guns? Oh, hell no. That's white people's worst nightmare come to life. It's the thing that white people have feared since before we were even a country. Black people with guns scares the shit out of a lot of white people, even to this very day. So during that period in the 60s, when white American culture was not even comfortable with the idea of riding a bus with a black person sitting next to them, guns was a step too damn far. In 1967, the Panthers went to the California state capitol to demonstrate against legislation that would threaten their ability to bear arms. In order to protect their Second Amendment rights, the Panthers went to the capitol to observe the legislative session. They were armed, as they usually were, and in their imposing Panther garb, black leather, natural hair, dark glasses. In the confusion of the press and the people scurrying about in the capitol, the Panthers ended up blundering onto the floor of the State House of Representatives, and that didn't go over great at all. The Panthers left the Capitol peacefully and congregated a few blocks away, where police arrested most of them and confiscated their weapons. Here's Ronald Reagan, then governor of California, speaking after the incident. 
I don't think that loaded guns is the way to solve a problem that should be solved between people of goodwill. And anyone who would approve of this kind of demonstration must be out of their mind. Fun fact. Ronald Reagan snitched for Hoover when he was the president of SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. A whole bunch of the actors, writers, and directors who found themselves under the steely gaze of Joe McCarthy were there because Reagan informed on them. He was a power-hungry little bitch. The Panthers' core principle was Black power to Black people. They wanted their communities to be self-sustained, but make no mistake, they believed the U.S. government was corrupt and unsalvageable, and it was their intention to overthrow that government through revolutionary means. They hoped for peaceful revolution, but they would settle for violent revolution if given no other choice. They did not truck with the peaceful high road that Dr. King worked so hard to cultivate and nurture to allow change to succeed sustainably before his life was tragically cut short at the end of a white man's rifle barrel. They saw his assassination as a sign that the white power structure wasn't going down without a fight, and they resolved to fight. The federal government saw the threat, and they took measures to destabilize opposition movements however they could. The primary mechanism to do this was a program Hoover devised called the Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO. Now, COINTELPRO was a program of monitoring and surveillance, but it also mandated taking actions to undermine the missions or public perceptions of those movements. The incident with Dr. King is a good example, but the Panthers got the COINTELPRO treatment in a big way all over the place. Most significantly, they planted stories in the media that exacerbated existing tensions inside the movement between Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton. This after having planted numerous stories about how the Panthers planned to kill white people outright or kidnap and rape women were planted in the press by the FBI. There was some splintering in the movement after the murder of Fred Hampton in Chicago in 1968 by police, and the FBI through extensive surveillance and informants, were very aware of the source of those tensions and just how to apply pressure to them. They planted stories in the press designed to inflame those tensions, and it totally worked. The Panthers just destroyed themselves. At that point, the FBI didn't even need to do anything more. They had totally destabilized the leadership of the party, and it all just fell apart. Anti-war demonstrators were also seen as a major communist threat from Hoover's point of view, especially during the Vietnam War, which was ostensibly a war against communism. So I guess if you were against the war, you were for communism? Which is obviously nonsense, but nationalism is a poison that affects people in a pretty specific way that overrides the mechanism of logic. At Kent State University in Ohio in May of 1970, four students were murdered by National Guard troops during anti-war demonstrations. It completely shocked the nation, and the factions of nationalist conservatism and radical liberalism locked horns once again, as they did in the Civil War era. And yet, the outrage of the nation was not shared by the president, Richard Nixon, and it didn't bother Hoover at all. Do you feel the nation is in trouble? I think very definitely it is. What is the answer? The answer is vigorous law enforcement. That's the only answer? That's the only answer. How about justice? You hear a lot about justice with law enforcement. Justice is merely incidental to law and order. That right there is the heart of the FBI speaking. That is how the nation's top law dog believed the people should be treated. If you had nerve enough to protest against an action of your government, 
you should be shot. Now, we know about COINTELPRO because in the summer of 1970, a bunch of radical anti-war activists broke into an embarrassingly unsecured FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and stole a butt-ton of files. The files contained extensive materials documenting the COINTELPRO actions, protocols, targets, and on and on and on, like thousands of pages. The findings actually spurred a congressional committee led by Senator Frank Church of Idaho that investigated the materials that were acquired in the break-in and into the allegations of abuses of power by the FBI for decades. The committee rocked the establishment powers, and by this time, Hoover had died, so his influence had evaporated into thin air, and it was much easier to apply the sorts of oversights that really should have been in place all along. Legislation was developed, agency guidelines for domestic investigations formed and implemented, and things improved somewhat. The FBI, as the nation's top domestic law enforcement agency, continues to be worthy of attention and oversight. Power at that level is dangerous. Why am I talking so much about Hoover? Well, I hope to have made clear the absolutely defining role that he played in creating not just the process of federal law enforcement using dishonest and illegal tactics, but also in enforcing a kind of cultural zeitgeist that endowed him with limitless power and also created an ideological template for how law enforcement should be enacted in America. He did not do this subtly. He did so vigorously and sometimes by force. He was a kind of dictator in our midst, and he had a similarly powerful psychic impact on the nation. The FBI is feared and respected in some quarters and reviled and mistrusted in others. And I believe that the wind of that revulsion (laughs) moves with its targets. For instance, in the 1990s, federal law enforcement saw threat in the multiple right-wing militia groups that were emerging. They used COINTELPRO-style tactics to infiltrate those groups, and the result were incidents like Ruby Ridge. Subsequently, conservative Americans, who once would have imbued implied trust to a true American institution, such as the FBI, now sees them as an active threat against them and the nation. As you heard from Hoover's own mouth, the idea of justice did not feature in his ideology at all. His concern was law and order, and the emphasis was very much on the latter. And that order was the established power structure of white supremacy. (laughs) That is at the heart of our nation's law enforcement system. Nixon was also a major proponent of this ideology, and he learned a lot from Hoover. In Hoover's final years, Nixon had lost confidence and trust in Hoover, who was increasingly paranoid and delusional. So Nixon directed the creation of his own special unit, who would perform COINTELPRO-style tactics against his political opponents. They called themselves the Plumbers. You may have heard of them. On the local level, that ideology also permeated policing, and Hoover's ideals of what American law enforcement looked like was mirrored in police forces all over America. But it looked a little more like America as it was. 
Hoover kept G-men G-men by using the same tactics on his agents as he did on his targets. He spied on them, tapped their phones, and had them followed, and let them know if they were straying from the path. Yuck. Local police didn't have that same kind of focus, but you can see the correlation with regard to how a police officer was intended to be, look, and act. Historically, police forces in the U.S. had their origins in slave-catching squads. So here again, in a very literal way, you see the white power establishment as the arbiter of justice to uphold a white power system. And that is the foundation block or the keystone of the system of policing that has evolved throughout American history and right up to today. The civil rights era was decidedly impactful in furthering the manifestation of a truly just society in that the federal government enacted and would actually enforce laws that protected every citizen's constitutional rights. Though those rights were laid out explicitly in the Constitution, there continued to be this assertion that it just didn't apply to non-white people or women in the same way. It still happens a lot, like a whole lot more than it should. But there was no point where states or cities or other jurisdictions said, hmm, we need to totally re-engineer how we're policing. Like, this shit is racist as fuck. Nope. We're still arguing that point in our society. Partly because cops are us. Our friends and family. People we know and see every day. Do you want to believe that the cop you know is a racist? No, of course not. You know them. They would never do anything of the sort. But it's a little like comparing climate change to weather. They look alike, but they're not the same. The problem isn't the cop necessarily, though that could certainly make matters worse. The problem is the system. And the system is built from many layers. The laws to begin with. We've touched on that a little. And then there's training. Training is a kind of programming For veterans, you understand that training is a series of repetitive drills that are designed to help you perform an action by instinct rather than by decision. And I'm not saying military and police training are the same, but they are similar and increasingly so as police forces continue to arm and equip themselves with military-grade gear. That sends a pretty specific and aggressive message about the sort of policing that they're expecting to do. And if that is the expectation, how do you think that is communicated to a trainee? If you're told to believe that every person or situation you encounter is a potential threat, how do you expect an individual to approach any person or situation? With open arms and a song in their heart? Probably not. Hoover's fingerprints are all over our nation's policing. And he was crazy. My dude was crazy. The point in all of this, of course, is not to wallow around in how awful American law enforcement is. That's spectacularly unhelpful. But if we know and understand that something so crucial in our daily lives is broken, and worse, broken in a way that's killing people daily in horrible ways, why wouldn't we want to approach that honestly with an eye towards how we help those people in that system rebuild it in more equitable terms? If the aim is truly justice and not merely enforcement of a given power structure, then shouldn't we have a frank conversation about what justice means and how we are failing it? In the next part, I'm going to talk about that and some ideas that some really smart people have about 
how we can think about justice in a world that moves beyond white supremacy. And I'll also talk about some ideas that I have about those things too. (laughs) That's it for this part of the pod. I hope you've enjoyed it and that maybe you've heard something that gives you a moment's pause in reframing how you've thought about justice and policing in America. In the next part, I'll be talking more about justice as a whole concept today in such a different world than the one in which our systems were created. The possibilities are pretty exciting, if seemingly impossible to obtain or realize. Again, I think cynicism is pretty easy. It's much harder to remain hopeful that meaningful change can occur to just stop the injustices of right now. Just surviving for a lot of people is hard-ass work, and that doesn't seem right to me. Maybe you agree. I hope you'll come back and listen some more. If you'd like to contact me for feedback or suggestions, I hope you'll feel free to do so. I have an email address at Susie Makes a Podcast. That's S-U-Z-I Makes a Podcast at gmail.com. And I have an Instagram at the same name, Susie Makes a Podcast. Come and find me. Until next time. <laughs>